Where are these missing pages? This map. We must have these pages back. This one's got pages missing. Why are the pages missing? Like a book with missing pages. American history, up until a few decades ago, was inundated with the idea of destiny. This story goes something like this. The people that come to the New World are seeking to build a great new society for the Puritan cause. After successfully building their colony up and separating themselves spiritually and physically from England, they decide to rebel against their overseers. This revolution is just a continuation of the destiny set forth from the beginning. They were able to throw off the yoke of an oppressive government and start the grand experiment of elective Republican government without a monarchy. And this continues past the revolution to the ideas of manifest destiny and American exceptionalism. The World Wars and the Cold War further exacerbate this idea of the American destiny as they become the sole superpower at the end of all of this. Now, I'd say it's likely that the peak of this idea was the late 80s. The Reagan administration, the fall of the Soviet Union, and the peak of Pax Americana. But since then, since the late 80s, there has been a large-scale reversal from this idea. This reversal largely started in the 60s and 70s with the civil rights movement. But what could possibly be seen as the inflection point where the peak of, of that previous destiny narrative started to reverse, and that would be the publication of Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. And this idea of, of looking at history from the eyes of those at the bottom rather than those at the top only grew from there. And it spread to looking at women specifically throughout history or looking at certain races specifically throughout history, and even now to sexualities throughout history. And it's led to, at this point, a growing idea that America is a parasitic force in, in the world rather than the country that is the harbinger for peace and keeps the world from destroying itself. Now, personally, I abhor the idea that America is an inherently parasitic force in the world just as much as the idea that they were destined to become the world's lone superpower. These competing narratives, with one largely winning at this point, have been a huge focus on history writing and education, much to the detriment of truth. Now, I've worked, perhaps unsuccessfully, and only time will tell whether this is true, but I've tried to reject both ends of this debate, and if try to bring nuance and detail to the forefront of the American story. Though I haven't run into any problems with the AP notes thus far, it's still early. I already can tell that they are pretty broad. So far, I've been retreading extremely firm paths, and especially in these last few episodes. I'm hoping that all of the further detail and general ideas that I bring up have allowed for some new information to be brought to the forefront that adds some color and missing detail that is important to the story. Now, I'm not a radical historian that is trying to undermine everything we know, nor do I think that everybody that wrote history in the past or writes it now is dumb and you shouldn't listen to them. I'm trying to cut through it all. I'm trying to cut through the narratives and not create any of my own. My hope throughout all of this in retreading what has been tread thousands and thousands of times, especially with this episode covering the Puritans in Massachusetts Bay, I'm hoping that there is something a little bit overlooked in the AP notes that I can bring to the forefront that I feel is an important detail to the American story that helps fill in some of that, those gaps. In the end, though, after finishing all of this, we'll sh we shall see whether or not either of those narratives, the destiny narrative or the parasitic force narrative, 
are true, if there's any truth to either of them. I only bring up these narratives because of the the incessant usage of the idea that America is a shining city upon a hill. This has been used by politicians from Ronald Reagan to Barack Obama. By the end of this episode, I hope that you find that this is a way too oversimplified look at the Massachusetts Bay history, and that the Puritans were neither a destined Christian nation-building force nor were they parasitic colonizers destined to destroy the native population. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So let's get started with the AP notes. This part of the AP notes starts again with one of those benchmark dates. Massachusetts Bay Colony, 1630. The notes state that another group of Puritans settled Massachusetts Bay in 1630, and it asks, what was the religious viewpoint of the Puritans that settled Massachusetts Bay? And I wrote, they're non-separatist Puritans that wanted to reform the Anglican Church from within. Continuing on, they, the notes state that the Puritans came to Massachusetts Bay for religious freedom and ec- economic betterment, and that they had a covenant or solemn agreement with God. And this covenant was described as such. If the Puritans lived according to scriptures and built a godly community, then they could expect peace and prosperity. If they didn't, they would be cursed. Then the notes describe the great migration that occurred in 1630, starting with the arrival of a thousand Puritans, one of which was John Winthrop, the leader of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and that he wrote a sermon called A Model of Christian Charity. There is a quote in here, I'm not going to read the entire thing, but summarized by me in the notes that if if everyone works as one, they will succeed and become a shining example for the people to strive for. And then the notes ask if I felt that Winthrop was too idealistic about the future of the Puritans. And I stated in in these notes that no, they needed hope due to previous failures. Then the notes discuss the religious practices among Puritans which was congregationalism shaped by John Cotton. It was a system of self-governing congregations that ignored the authority of the Anglican bishops in England, and the church leaders were male saints. And then the question is asked, why did the Puritans favor congregationalism? And I said, they weren't completely sure that the bishops were saved. They were trying to reform the Anglican church, and it was easier for them to rule themselves. And then we move on to describing the conversion relation, which was a person's account of his or her own conversion experience in front of the congregation. They would be interrogated, and if they passed this test, they were declared a saint. And then the notes ask why the Massachusetts Puritans required this conversion relation as a test. I stated that it was an honor to be a saint, and they didn't want it to be too easy, and that other people are likely to have a conversion if they see someone else have one. The notes then continue that the form of government at the local level was the town meeting where adult males met together and each man voted by a show of hands and that there was no separation of church and state. The notes then ask, what are three things that prove this? And the three are that the laws of the colony were based in religious law, they had to pay taxes to the church and everyone was required to go to church, and they had to be male saints to vote and have full citizenship. The notes then ask what are some advantages and disadvantages of this setup. Some advantages were that no church versus government conflict and the church is guaranteed an income. And the disadvantages are that the people didn't really want to pay taxes to the church and there wasn't much religious freedom. Moving forward in the notes, the notes discuss the founding of Harvard College in 1636 with the original purpose of training ministers. Then we move on to the Pequot War and the notes ask... What was the major cause of this war, which I state, there was encroaching on the Pequot land. They used total war tactics, assuming this means the English used total war tactics and destroyed everything the enemy has. Then there is a quote by John Mason about the massacre at Mystic, though we skip those two points. Then the old Deluder Act of 1647 is discussed, which ordered every town with 50 plus houses to have a teacher and 100 plus houses to have a grammar school. The Puritans believed 
in this necessity for education because they believed that if their children could read the Bible, then they could protect themselves from Satan. And then the question is asked if I thought that this was truly necessary in an agrarian society in which I state that it would allow children more success if they were educated. So this is a lot, and it actually seems to go through quite a bit of the Massachusetts Bay Colony history. Now, like previous episodes, I will try my best to fill in the gaps, as there are some details that are important to this story. So once again, we'll have to dig deep to find all of those details and fill in the missing pages. Last episode, I talked about how the actions of King James I in the early 17th century led to a, a, a small group of Puritans leaving for the Netherlands and then eventually for America. Now, there were several Puritans that did not leave. In fact, the vast majority of them did not leave during the beginning of the 17th century. They, the non-separatists, wanted to reform the church from within. I mentioned that last episode. And they did not feel that it was necessary for them to leave England at this moment. However, this would change eventually with the ascension of King Charles I in 1625. Now, this 15-plus years of continuous religious attacks as well as just attacks on their general rights as... English men eventually began to wear on many of the Puritans, and the ascension of King Charles I in 1625, after the death of his father, King James, was one of the final nails in the coffin. He was married to the French princess Henrietta Maria and converted to Catholicism, and while he worked with Parliament early as a child during his father's reign, as soon as he became king, he decided that he wanted to continue the mission of his father and assert the king's divine right. Charles quickly attacked the political rights of his subjects and took a very direct aim at the Church of England, the same church that the Puritans were attempting to reform from within. Now, this extreme pressure made the Puritans extremely uncomfortable in their homeland and prompted a massive migration to the New World. And there was constant attacks on the Puritans. Their churches were burned, their houses raided. Many Puritans had to travel a long way in secret to find a parish that would take them, and they had to worry the entire time that they would be attacked during their sermon. In 1628, William Laud was raised to the position of Bishop of London and acted as a leader of the High Commission. William Laud is a pretty key player in what will go down here uh, in England specifically. But in short, he was relentless against the Puritans and spent much of his time purging dissenters of the Anglican Church. Now, these attacks on dissenters of the Anglican Church led many Puritans to feel like there's no way out. One of those Puritans was Reverend John White. In 1624, with the news of the pilgrims landing in the New World and bringing those Puritan beliefs with them, he and the Dorchester Company sent a group of settlers to Cape Ann. However, this was an unsuccessful settlement and, after relocating twice, was on the brink of disaster. But he was not ready to give up. And with the rapidly changing winds in 1628 and the seemingly turbulent air in the government at the time, John White felt that this was a good time to exploit this and try to basically push, put one over the king himself. Thus, he created the Massachusetts Bay Company. He collected investors, and his new goal was not for profits, but to create a world where Puritans could thrive and create for themselves a new Jerusalem to uphold their covenant. And this only became more crucial as time went on, 
and William Laud's practices continued to spread. Now, instead of abandoning his original colony of Cape Ann, he sent 50 uh, new planters in order to try to reverse the fortune. And John Endicott was sent as a new governor. Now, this only made the situation in Cape Ann worse, but reinforcements would be coming soon, as in 1629, the Massachusetts Bay Company was granted a royal charter between Plymouth and what would become modern-day New Hampshire. And in 1629, two meetings were held in regards to the company. The first stated that the government would be the responsibility of those living in New England, basically self-rule, and the other was just to determine basically the finances and governing and relations with the natives, etc. And it was during this second meeting that it was determined that this new settlement would be a refuge for the godly and a model for the world. They would transport families rather than ambitious individuals, as they had seen in Virginia. And this new plan unfolded in 1630 when about a thousand settlers, mostly Puritans, sailed with abundant supplies on 17 ships towards Salem, or Cape Ann. They elected John Winthrop as the new governor and set on building their new home. Many of these original settlers were families, and many knew each other very well. The age distribution of these first settlers was very similar to the total age distribution in England, very different from that in Virginia, which was mostly young men. Furthermore, unlike in Virginia and many other colonies in the New World, where you would see 10 to 1 or 100 to 1 even men to women in some of those Spanish and Portuguese colonies, for instance. It was about 100 females to 150 males on these first voyages. Only about 25% of them were servants, as opposed to the 75% seen in Virginia. And this was a matter of policy. Families came first. The voyage was to be paid for by the passengers rather than paid for by rich landowners, leading to much fewer servants. Most of the people that came were skilled tradesmen and came from all different sized towns, but mostly from large towns. And most interestingly, most of the people that came in these first voyage came from one region in eastern England. David Hackett Fisher, in his book Albion Seed, which is a book laying out how four different migration patterns shaped the way that the American culture developed, basically how these four different groups brought together their four cultures and eventually merged into what we now call American. Now Fisher basically lays out an overall view of what this migration looked like. Quote, in summary, by comparison with other emigrant groups in American history, the Great Migration of Massachusetts was a remarkably homogeneous movement of English Puritans who came from the middle ranks of their society and traveled in family groups. The heads of these families tended to be exceptionally literate, high-skilled, and heavily urban in their English origins. They were a people of substance, character, and deep personal piety. The special quality of New England's regional culture would owe much to these facts. End quote. This first voyage of about a thousand people landed in June of, of 1630, June 22nd, and along with those thousand people, these ships carried 240 head of cattle, 60 horses, 10,000 bricks, one ton of iron nails, a musket and bandolier for each man, hundreds of swords, a fishing net per ship, 400 pairs of shoes, dozens of pots, and hundreds of sheets. They landed in Salem, and those that already were there did not really welcome them with open arms. These people would be named the Old Farmers. And many people saw that Salem was not really a ripe place for a new colony or a, a uh, larger colony. So they moved to Charlestown on the northern bank of the Charles River. Charlestown was placed on an old town called Mishawam, a major town for the Pawtucket, similar to what the pilgrims did with Plymouth. When the settlers landed, they started to build houses. These houses were a little bit different from the houses that the pilgrims built. Uh, if you remember back, the pilgrims built wattle and daub houses, which was the style that they were most comfortable with or most used to in England. These Puritans, though, they made wooden houses, though they started 
when they first landed building small wooden wigwams. But very early on, they transitioned to building houses that are much more well-known to the area, to the Northeast today. They were mostly just four walls with a large gabled roof that extended farther on the back end than the front end. And these houses were called salt box houses. Now, upon landing, the Puritans, like the pilgrims, also remarked how abundant the food sources were, especially in the waters. However, the land was not very suitable for growing, and unlike Virginia, had very small pockets of suitable land for for growing anything uh, substantial. So this led to the failure of any cash crop emerging in New England. The weather patterns were brutal, with fronts converging from four different directions, making the weather predictably rainy, though with massive swings in temperature. The Puritans would not back down from this challenge, though, and because of their willingness to prove their worth to God, not through work, but just show that because they are working through these challenges that they are saints, they took these challenges head on. This didn't matter much, though, and like Virginia, there were struggles early on. Charlestown, where the many of these settlers went, was also not big enough for these this many new people. So John Winthrop, the new governor, decided to occupy the nearby peninsula as well. And he named this new place Boston, which was a major city, a major town in eastern England, where there was a large Puritan presence and a large Puritan church. And this is actually seen, if you look at many names of towns in the New England area, many of them have names that are basically the same, if not exactly the same, as many in England, especially eastern England. The situation, though, remained dire. Because they landed so late and moved so often, the planting season was already missed, and that first winter took a toll on the colonists. This winter was much harsher than any that they had seen in England, so they were not ready for it. And because of this, Winthrop had to turn to government force and civic pressure in order to get people to work in order to make sure that this colony would not fail. Many meetings were held, as well as elections, and throughout all of this, the government was revised, such as voting being restricted to only church members, and puritanical rules were put in place, such as banning dice and card playing, smoking, and excessive drinking. To some, this was just an attempt to create a model society. Others saw it as an affront to their life. This was specifically the old planters. However, by the spring of 1631, some of this started to pay off, and the hard work of the per- first year began to pay off as the crops were more successful, and many different industries began to take seed with a promise of strong growth. In the first 18 months, though, 40% of the population that came over in that first wave, that first thousand, had either died or had gone back to England. 200 people were dead, and 200 more were back in England. Along with this, dissidents became a nuisance for Winthrop to deal with, as some colonists attempted to undermine this government, such as Henry Lynn and Philip Ratcliffe. Though by 1633, the colony was in much better shape and in a stable enough condition that new immigrants did not struggle nearly as much as the original settlers. Immigration was also accelerated when William Laud was granted the position of Archbishop of Canterbury, in 1633, and he was used as the head of the spear for Charles II's persecution of all dissidents to the Anglican Church. And this crackdown led to a lot of immigration out of England. About 25% of all immigrants that left England at the time went to Massachusetts Bay. About 95% of Puritan immigrants went there. This influx of people over the decade introduced tremendous amounts of trade, thus turning Boston into a trading hub in the New World. Those that escaped due to a religion were mostly seeking religious freedom, not to convert the native population, though. However, others were just trying to cleanse their souls of the filth of England. And between 1630 and 1641, about 20,000 people made their way from England to New England. Now, this massive influx that started to make their way to New England, to Boston specifically, put a strain on the church of Massachusetts. 
Now, to Puritans, the church leadership and the church itself was above all. Though the first sermon was held under a tree in Boston, the meeting house was built very quickly and used as both the home of the government and home of the church. John Winthrop did not only had harsh rules for the colonists in terms of drinking and whatnot, he also had harsh rules in terms of doctrine. There were two major opponents to this doctrine being instated pretty much right at the beginning. The first was Roger Williams, and the second was Anne Hutchinson. Now, we will go into much greater detail with these two in the next episode. Roger Williams took a stand against these ideals that Winthrop was pushing on the grounds that the government could not enforce doctrine on its citizens, stating that no one should come between man and God. For this, Roger Williams was driven out of Boston and then later out of Salem. Now, Anne Hutchinson was the protege of John Cotton, a new arrival in the colony, though not new to any of the Puritans, and he worked alongside Winthrop to promote this conformity that Winthrop strived for, with Cotton on the pulpit and Winthrop in the court. John Cotton is a pivotal figure in Massachusetts, And though he's not on the first ship, he will become a sort of spiritual leader uh, in all of Massachusetts Bay and and eventually in all of the colonies around Massachusetts itself. John Cotton was born in 1584 in Derbyshire. At the age of 13, he attended Cambridge, a devoutly Calvinist school at the time. And after nine years of study, he received his bachelor's and master's degree. But during this time, he reached high levels of success in Cambridge. He became a fellow, the dean, a lecturer, and even the head catechist. And after receiving his second bachelor's degree in divinity, he became the new vicar of the Boston Church in Lincolnshire, England. It is here that he meets many of the key figures in New England, During his time as the vicar of the Church of Boston, Cotton had many rifts to mend. The constant changing landscape of religion in England made this no easy task. He found his answer by dividing the congregation into those that he saw as elect and those that were not. They were not clearly separated, but those considered elect could opt out of some of the obligations they saw as necessary, such as kneeling at the Lord's Supper. And this would become the norm in New England once he arrives and becomes the main preacher in New England and the spiritual leader, as I said before. This was not accepted by many in England, though, especially those that were excluded from this exclusive elect company. And because of many protests to this practice, Cotton was actually suspended as the vicar. He appealed and won and was reinstated, though he had to hire a secondary preacher to preach to the unelect. And this balance was kept with Edward Wright, chosen as the unelect preacher, until 1721, when several men ransacked the church, destroying the windows, tapestries, and statues, but leaving the pulpit untouched. This was done by many Anglicans, those the Church of England followers, though it was not sanctioned by the church itself. But shortly thereafter, the Church of England itself had a shakedown where nonconformist literature was banned in 1622, and in 1624, all church literature was licensed by the Anglican Church. And William Laud, who rose to the Bishop of London and then later the Archbishop of Canterbury, created a list of all the Puritan ministers uh, in the country, and John Cotton was on that list. Now, Charles, when he came to power, as I've said, was decidedly anti-Puritan and wanted the Church of England to look back to Rome. And it was around this time that John Cotton started to mingle with the Massachusetts Bay Company and became an integral part of that company. He was there in 1630 to bid the first travelers farewell. And in 1633, he would eventually show up in New England with his new wife after his wife died 
of malaria that he also contracted, though he survived. They would arrive in the Griffin, along with many other Puritans, such as Anne Hutchinson, and began preaching at the Boston Meeting House, an austere building with four walls painted white with a bell tower on top. Now, Anna Hutchinson was forced to conform or leave when she began to speak out against the doctrine that Cotton was preaching at the pulpit. Now, these were minor transgressions. We'll get into the details next episode, as I said. But she was scolded by Cotton directly and then later excommunicated from the Boston church and banished from Boston. So all of these were seen as, in Winthrop's view, necessary to create a new Jerusalem that he spoke about in his departing sermon from England. He also saw that his authority over the word of God was absolute and acted accordingly. In his eyes, to yield and to conform to his views was to be welcomed in the church. All else must be admonished or removed. Winthrop acted as governor of Boston for the next three years. He faced many challenges even after the survival of the colony was all but insured. These challenges that Winthrop faced came from within the colony itself and from without. William Laud set forth several actions to slow the Puritan migration to Boston. There were even rumors of a military campaign to recover the original charter in order to rescind it. To counteract this, the court set forth a motion to create a sea fort, but settled with fortifying the existing settlements instead. The court also ordered all freemen to swear a loyalty oath to the Boston government. Suffrage also became more and more limited as the church requirement, that you had to be a member of the church in order to vote, became more prohibitive. Members would only be added if they demonstrated clearly that they were visible saints, and this usually involved a ceremony in which you would show that you were chosen by God. Again, this is a Calvinist religion in which the chosen are chosen at birth and not chosen over time given good work. In 1634, Fernando Gorges laid forth a plan to rescind the charter from Massachusetts Bay and in 1635 had papers sent to the king's bench to do just that. Gorges himself then decided to go to the colony and seize the charter, but on the way, his ship was unable to launch, so the colony was saved by happenstance. In 1634, Winthrop was also facing several direct challenges over his control of the colonies. The first was a request by Thomas Hooker to leave Boston, and this was denied by Winthrop, which led to a schism between the magistrates and the general court. In effect, the refusal to allow Hooker to leave marked the creation of two separate houses. And in 1634, Winthrop was challenged by his then deputy governor, the second in line, Thomas Dudley. Winthrop was accused and found guilty of ignoring the rules set forth in the original charter for his own gain and was voted out. Winthrop did not stop, though, and he became very worried about more dissent rising in Boston, and he decided to make sure that there was no possibility of this. So he appointed preachers such as Hugh Peter and John Wilson in, in multiple different towns to ensure the true and proper faith was upheld and the, the power of the leadership was not undermined. Winthrop again tried to regain his position in 1635, though he lost again. And into this tumultuous period where Roger Williams was facing trial yet again and soon to be banished, steps Henry Vane the Younger. Now, Henry Vane was the son of a lord and an advisor to King Charles I. He arrived in Massachusetts in October of 1635 at the age of 22 and made an impact almost immediately. He was admitted shortly thereafter to the Church of Boston and began his political campaign to become governor. Now, Vane, being of a lordly background, was not a prototypical Puritan. Puritans dressed very modestly and mostly black, and Vane wore lace, jewelry, and belts, and his hair was long and unseemly. Despite this, he was taken in by many as a guide and an advisor. He was able to arrange meetings between Dudley and Winthrop to settle their differences, and this meeting was an important one in early colonial Boston. Along with Winthrop and Dudley, John Wilson, Hugh Peter, and John Cotton were all invited as well. Winthrop conceded, 
that he could have acted more quickly with regard to Williams and promised to do so in the future. And this meeting was a, such a success that Vane was named the head of the Military Affairs Commission. And this upward trajectory led to its ultimate conclusion when he was chosen as governor on May 25th, 1636. Now, he was not ambitious for power, but he understood the troubles that Massachusetts was facing at this point. Religious divisions, encroaching French traders, conflicts with the natives, and a worry that the royal charter would be ended. Henry Vane's political career in America was short-lived. He was voted out the next year for siding with Hutchinson during the antinomian controversy, which we will talk about next episode. But despite this, in this year, 1636, Vane oversaw a turning point with regards to relations with the natives. In 1636, there were several different small-scale skirmishes with the natives and the English, and several killings of Englishmen by the natives over the years, though likely justified, had put the colonists on edge. One Englishman in particular, John Oldham, an old trader, that had been there in the Massachusetts area prior to the colony. He was one of those old farmers. He was found dead in a small boat by John Gallup, who had noticed many natives ransacking it. Like I said, Oldham was just one of many, but this seemed to push the English over the edge. Upon receiving this news, the colonists wanted revenge and saw this as an opportunity to make an example of those natives. It was not known which tribe actually had killed Oldham. It was originally thought that the Narragansett had perpetrated this, but Roger Williams argued for their innocence, and this was granted by both Henry Vane and John Winthrop. It was determined that the Pequots and the Block Island Indians, also known as the Manasseans, were the ones who had killed Oldham. John Endicott was sent to Block Island then to kill all the men, and enslave the women and children. That was of the Manasseans. He would then go to the Pequots and demand the killers of any Englishmen. The Indians had learned of these attacks ahead of time, though, and were prepared when Endicott arrived. Despite this, the natives stood no chance against the English armor, so they fled the island completely. At the end of this battle, 13 Pequot were killed with 40 wounded, with only two Englishmen dying. Endicott, in his frustration for not being able to kill all of them, killed all the animals and burned the stock of food. To put an end to this, Endicott tried to negotiate with the Pequots, but was rebuffed, and after burning another Pequot village, returned to Boston with no progress made. This negotiation by Endicott was more of a show of force and wanted the Pequot to capitulate. This did not go over well with the Pequot and was seen more as an act of war than a peace offering. This attack by Endicott brought more attacks by the Pequots. They killed several isolated colonists throughout the bay, and often very brutally. 30 of the 250 colonists in Connecticut were killed in these attacks. It's unknown how much of the reported brutality actually occurred, or if it was just propaganda, but the English saw it as justification for all-out war. The Pequots saw their situation as untenable, and sought the help of their mortal enemy, the Narragansett. With Roger Williams' help, though, the Narragansett did not ally with the Pequots and signed a treaty with Massachusetts Bay instead. So the Pequots continued their small-scale attacks alone, but direct war did not take place until colonists in Connecticut drove several Indians off their land, a move that was actually deemed illegal by the English court later. The offending town was later attacked by the Pequots, and this made the English worried that these constant tit-for-tat attacks would embolden other Indian tribes, so they found justification to put the Pequots down for good. To conduct this new battle, this new war, John Mason was hired by Massachusetts Bay and Connecticut. He was a veteran of the Thirty Years' War prior to moving to the New World and was no friend of the natives. Now, this war was not about pride, as was common in Indian warfare, This was about extermination. And the English, to be clear, found extermination warfare extremely helpful in many of their pursuits. They did the same thing in Ireland as they are doing here. All-out war, total warfare, leaving no quarter. 
Now Mason was joined Mason was joined by 500 Narragansett warriors to double his army. They marched from Narragansett Bay to the doorstep of the Pequot 30 miles away at Mystic Fort. Now this fort was too much to take head on, so Mason decided to force the Pequots out. To do so, he set fire to the fort. And one of the soldiers there, John Underhill, wrote about this encounter, this war. And the report of this incident by Underhill is written in The First Frontier by Scott Widensall. Quote, The fires of both meeting in the center of the fort blazed most terribly and burned all in the space of a half an hour. Many were burnt in the fort, both men, women, and children. Others forced out and came in troops to the Indians, twenty and thirty at a time, which our soldiers entertained with the point of a sword. Down fell men, women, and children. Those that escaped us fell into the hands of the Indians that were in the rear of us. It is reported by themselves that there were about four hundred souls in this fort, and not above five of them escaped into our hands. Great and doleful was the bloody sight to the view of young soldiers that it never had been in war. To see so many souls lie gasping on the ground, so thick in some places that you could hardly pass along. End quote. So the Pequots were left a choice of death by sword or death by fire. The English followed those that escaped, though they did not get far, and in the end, between 400 and 700 Pequot were killed. This slaughter marked the virtual end of this war and ultimately the end of the Pequot. This war, the Pequot War, only lasted about six months. Now, the Pequot were not completely defeated, but they had enemies surrounding them. They were not liked by many other Indian tribes. And because of this massive defeat, they were never able to regroup. The Narragansett offered the English over 200 captive Pequots, all of which were either killed or enslaved. Thus began, in earnest, the Indian slave trade in the bay that dispersed captured women and children around the English colonial sphere. And I will talk about this more in detail in the episode specifically about slavery. But this triangle slave trade that we know about included native slaves, not just Africans. Now, William Bradford in Plymouth knew about this, and he is noted as saying that this massacre was the work of God, that it was ridding the savages from this land that was rightfully theirs. This war didn't just do that. This war was much more about Massachusetts showing the Indians that they had power in the region as much as it was showing that they had power over Connecticut, they had power over Rhode Island, New Netherland, and that they were not to be messed with. I'll talk about Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Netherland in later episodes, but at this point, Massachusetts Bay was asserting themselves as the great power in the region. And the Narragansett were actually rebuffed in their attempt to gain claim over the former Pequot territory, but they were not keen on starting a war with Massachusetts because they saw what they were willing to do. Shortly after the Pequot War ended, external turmoil started to affect the Massachusetts colony. In 1637, King Charles I forced the Church of Scotland to adopt the Book of Common Prayer, which was used in the Anglican Church. The Church of Scotland was a Calvinist Presbyterian church. It was very strongly rooted in Protestantism, which Charles hated. And he wanted to strike right at the source of this Protestantism in Scotland. This was violently rejected all across the country. And the first instance of this is a famous story of a woman throwing a stool at the preacher using this book. This was seen as part of the beginning of the English Civil Wars, as the Scottish declared war on the king. Now, right before this time, this, this war, Charles had completely ignored Parliament and what would be later known as personal rule, where he would rule without Parliament. And he used this time period to persecute more heavily the Puritans and Protestants in the region. And when he was forced to call Parliament, a Parliament that was very unhappy with not being called for several years, he found that the public perception of him and his rule had shifted massively. So by the time that this new parliament was called, 
they staunchly opposed him. He attempted to dissolve this parliament, though was denied forcefully, thus starting the Long Parliament. And this parliament began in 1640 and lasted nine years, and they imposed hard sanctions on anyone that was allied with the king and charged them with treason. This included Archbishop William Laud and many others. They did more than just charge loyalists. They made sweeping changes to the roles of the king and of parliament, slowly eroding the power of the king. They went as far as to try to force the Church of England to worship like Puritans. And this display of power over the king inspired others, such as the Irish, to revolt as well. And over time, this long parliament became more and more radical in their beliefs. They were determined to take down any supporter of the church and the king. They felt even more justified when King Charles attempted to take control by force. And Charles was going to surround parliament and and bum-rush them, basically, and arrest them all. Parliament, though, had been forewarned and left him to burst into an empty room. Chaos erupted in the streets after this, and the king fled. Thus began the English Civil War. Now, I'm not going to go into detail with the English Civil War. It's a complex topic with lots of moving parts that is outside of the scope of American history specifically. I recommend going and listening to the Revolutions podcast on the English Civil War if you're more interested in this conflict specifically. I will reference it a little bit as time goes on because there are important aspects of the English Civil War that affect American history, but the whole conflict will not be discussed in this podcast. The first effect, though, of the English Civil War in and, and in the calling of the Long Parliament in 1640 was the stopping of persecution of Protestants and Puritans in, in, in particular. Now, because the persecution stopped, many who saw hope in America now realized that England was actually safer than America. And there were many in New England that actually made their way back to England. And that is something that I have not mentioned a lot, at least in these first few episodes. In my understanding, previous understanding of the colonies, it was a one-way trip. You went to the colonies and you stayed there. That was not the case for especially the New England colonies. It, it was the case early on, perhaps, in Jamestown, mostly because they died before they had a chance to get back. But we'll, we'll see some more and more as time goes on trips back and forth to England, especially to English courts, in order to advocate for the colonies. And that was uh, something that had to be done continuously, because these still were under the English rule. So the English courts were where these issues were hashed out. Back to the main point, those that stayed behind and stayed in Massachusetts and New England in general began to realize how precarious the position was without massive influxes of resources. Debts began to run up, and a downward economic spiral began. They needed relief, and they needed it fast. So Hugh Peter, Thomas Weld, and John Winthrop Jr., John Winthrop's son, were sent back to get help from Parliament. They did get some support from Parliament, but it did not help everything. These new economic troubles led to worries about the surrounding colonies, namely the Dutch and the French and nearby Indian nations that were growing increasingly weary of the colonists. So Massachusetts decided to ally militarily with Plymouth, Connecticut, and New Haven. This alliance created what was known as the United Colonies. Now there's one colony in this region that was not added to this this alliance, and that was Rhode Island. And each of these territories, Plymouth, Connecticut, New Haven, and Massachusetts, all had claims over that territory. These disputes continued for over a decade, with Roger Williams at the head of the Rhode Island side of the debate, and he was able to eventually secure a charter, though, and forced them to back off. The economic downturn did not last forever, and during the English Civil War, because the colonies were left alone, they did not have to follow the mercantile practices that were very common in the colonies. Now, this this practice was one where all profits basically went back to England itself, back to the motherland. We'll talk a little bit more about this trade in the slavery episode, but to suffice it to say, the New England colonies would trade with the Caribbean colonies, giving them either Indian slaves or food in return for sugar and tobacco, which would then be sold to England for money. Arriving from the Caribbean were also African slaves. Now, this allowed Boston to become a large trading hub in the New World, and the government 
now run by Oliver Cromwell, largely let them be as they were allies religiously. Despite being a trading hub, Massachusetts was not what we would probably consider a capitalistic and uh, overtly, say, mercantile place. In fact, it was actively prevented from being so by the government and by the religious leaders. For instance, John Cotton proclaimed a code of business ethics denying anybody from you know, buying low is selling high, you know, speculating, or gouging based on losses due to calamities such as uh, shipwrecks or something like that. And there's a story of a merchant named Robert Kane that learned this the hard way. He was a rich merchant tailor in London. He came to Massachusetts Bay in the 1630s, and he became Boston's richest merchant while he was there. But John Winthrop noted in some of his writings that he was, quote, wealthy and sold dearer than most other tradesmen, end quote. So basically, he sold a lot higher his commodities, his, his goods, than others. And in 1639, a bunch of people complained, and he was formally charged in the general court with oppression. And this came with a fine of 200 pounds, by far the highest penalty up until this point given out by the Puritan court. This saga was what brought John Cotton to bring forth those rules. See, the Puritans did not think that people should be able to benefit from other people's suffering. They were very much egalitarian in that way, much more so than probably many would suspect given the view that people have of them today. This is not to say that they were communist or anything like that. Uh, They were merely attempting to prevent people from taking advantage of each other. This time of stability and actually success in trade allowed Massachusetts Bay and the leadership to look more inward with their policies. For instance, children were required to learn how to read by their parents in 1642. This law was later copied by Connecticut in 1650, New Haven in 1655, and Plymouth in 1671. Now, these Puritans that landed in Massachusetts had a very high literacy rate compared to the rest of the country. And this was based in the Puritan religion. They needed to read on their own. See, Puritanism was much more individualized than, say, Roman Catholicism. And David Hackett Fisher, in his book Albion Seed, has some of the statistics behind this. Quote, This religious attitude was closely linked to a social fact of some importance. By the standards of the 17th century, a very large proportion of adults in the Bay Colony were able to read and write. In 1660, approximately two-thirds of New England men and more than one-third of women were able to sign their wills. By 1760, these rates of signature mark, that being able to sign, literacy, had risen to about 84% for men and 50% for women. End quote. He continues on explaining that the county that these Puritans came from, East Anglia, had a higher literacy rate than England as a whole. Quote, Approximately 55% could sign their names in that county, compared with 30% in England as a whole. End quote. The religious reasoning behind this literacy was eventually actually brought into law. What is called the Old Deluder Law, based on its first sentence, was enacted in 1647. The introduction to this law states, quote, It being one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures as in former times keeping them in an unknown tongue, so in these later times by persuading from the use of tongues that so at least the true sense and meaning of the original might be clouded with false glosses of saint-seeming deceivers. And the learning may not be buried in the graves of our forefathers in church and commonwealth, the Lord assisting in our endeavors. End quote. Now it's a little bit confusing, but basically what they're arguing is everybody needs to be able to read scripture in order to prevent Satan from taking over. To know the scripture is to prevent sin. And because the Puritans believe that the Bible is the true word of God, this is its reality, it's not an interpretation or anything like that, anybody that 
interprets it is tarnishing the word itself. This law, which is also known as the old deluder Satan law, but either way, the old deluder law forced every town of 50 families or more to hire a schoolmaster, and every town of 100 or more had a grammar school that taught Latin and Greek. As a result of this law, children in Massachusetts and New England received about twice as much education and schooling as those in Virginia. And this did not stop with children. The Puritans were extremely supportive of higher education. And within a century and a half of founding Massachusetts, there were four colleges, the first being Harvard. And by the American Revolution, this was almost as many as the rest of the colonies combined. And this is still kind of holds today. New England is considered the most highly educated place in the country. And these schools were actually funded by families as well. There was a, a sort of corn tax, and they would even give gifts. Many families would give gifts uh, called college corn. These universities at the beginning were much more ministerial. They were religious schools. And eventually they would become liberal arts colleges, true to its name. And these schools acted as a bulwark for the Puritans against social degeneracy and a way to protect their cultural heritage. By 1650, despite the slowdown in immigration from England, there were roughly 20 to 30,000 English settlers in New England. And this number dwarfed the number of natives in the region at this point due to disease, war, slavery, etc. The ever-expanding population led to more need for land to house and feed everyone. And this led to massive fights between English and natives and natives between natives as well for land. These land grabs were often done fraudulently and through force rather than through agreement, though sometimes it was a purchase from sachems, as we've mentioned before, like Massasoit and Plymouth. Now I'm going to stop here because 1650 marks a turning point in some colonial history with the Navigation Acts, and we'll talk about that in a later episode. But remember where this is going. All of these land grabs will lead eventually to all-out war. And this is something that will happen throughout all of the entire American colonies. And by the end of this season, we'll see the aftermath of this massive influx of people from England. Now, I want to end this episode on what may be the most well-known part of New England history or early colonial history in New England. Either on the way to the New World or prior to departing, sources are unclear on which one it is, John Winthrop gave a sermon called A Model of Christian Charity. In his work, he writes that it was written on board the Arbella, the ship that he was sailing on, though it is possible that he gave this sermon slightly before. In this sermon, Winthrop describes the reasoning behind this colony and what the colony will look like a little bit more fundamentally. And this sermon is most well known for one passage, which would later be used by politicians, um, most famously by Ronald Reagan in the 80s, the city upon the hill. Now this sermon is about 6,000 words long, which would take almost an hour to read through it all the way. So I'm not going to do that. But I think it's important to look beyond just that city upon a hill portion. But the portion that this is from, the, that city upon the hill, that paragraph, does lay out quite a bit about what this colony should look like to the Puritans and to Winthrop himself. Now before this paragraph, there is a lot of talk about the spreading of Christianity throughout the world and many references in the Bible of the necessity to do that in the Christian faith. He also talks about the idea of community in Christianity. For instance, quoting Corinthians 1, if one member suffers, all suffer with it. If one be in honor, all rejoice with it. So these two ideas of spreading Christianity and community were the main crux of this sermon. And in one of the final paragraphs, all of this comes together in Winthrop's sermon. And right before this paragraph, Winthrop states that failing to follow the covenant of God 
will lead to calamity. And Winthrop continues from here, quote, Now the only way to avoid this shipwreck and to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. For this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must be willing to abridge ourselves of our superfluities for the supply of others' necessities. We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and our community in the work as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his one people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways, so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than formerly we have been acquainted with. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations. And now he's quoting what those people would say, quote, The Lord make it likely that of New England, end quote. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. So that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. End quote. Now, this is a sermon, after all, written in 1630. Some of the sentence structure is a little bit different than what we may be used to, but I think we can understand the main crux of this sermon being similar to what we saw in the previous episode with the Mayflower Compact. Now, that one was a little bit different, as there were non-Puritans that were part of that, that needed to be brought into the fold and allowed to be treated equally in the government. This one is much more restrictive in who the people are, the Puritans. But these ideas that we must work together to pursue the common good rather than the good of one is not lost on me and should not be lost on anybody who reads this. We saw earlier this episode, and we will see more so in future episodes, how this promise was not fully upheld even by Winthrop himself, though he might have a different interpretation because of his view of, of what religious freedom looks like, for instance. But these ideas are here. Now, again, 1630 is before the time of even the social contract being a well-known idea. Now, these ideas were still percolating. They were not completely new to people, and Thomas Hobbes likely came up with these ideas by being in circles where these ideas were being pursued and talked about in higher education. But there's a reason why this sermon is looked at still today. And it's not just that idea of a city upon a hill, that American exceptionalism, that is part of it. Uh, in this sermon, that is definitely part of it. They, he states explicitly that all eyes are on us, and if we fail, Christianity has failed. It's a bold assertion. But the other ideas in here, acting as one people, acting for each other and not individually, is an idea that will become much more prevalent as this century goes on. And all of these ideas, these ideas that we've seen here in New England and in Virginia, and we'll talk more about some of those ideas later on, will eventually lead to the American Revolution. Now, none of those that fought in the Revolution are, are alive at this point. There were two, three, even four generations off from those people being alive. I think I mentioned George Washington's grandfather at the end of the Virginia episode. But these ideas and these groups of people in Virginia, in New England, and those that fracture off from here as well, as we'll see in the next episode, 
they do have influences in American history. Now, because the people that were in the revolution are not alive at this point, it's hard to say how much of this influenced them. And I will explore that as I get to reading more and more about the Founding Fathers specifically. And there's a whole period between the end of this season and the revolutionary period that will elucidate whether or not these ideas funneled down to the Founding Fathers. But it is important to understand now that the idea of liberty, of community, of the social contract exist prior to some of those ideas being extremely prevalent in philosophy and political philosophy in Europe. They're not as fully fledged and not fully developed like, say, Thomas Hobbes in Leviathan or eventually John Locke in his treatises. But it can be seen here how these ideas can be organically developed in order to keep the peace in certain colonies, for instance. And we'll see in the next episode how these ideas in theory, ideas of community and working for one another, can be shattered when the reality of those people that you are governing, the people that may disagree with you religiously, politically, etc., when all of that hits you square in the face.